Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place and a great crowd of his disciples, a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, Tyre, and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. All were trying to touch him, for power came out from him. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. We have four Gospels because we have four authors who were trying to address this story about Jesus to different readerships. Mark wrote first of the four. His account is the briefest of the four. Mark seems to be trying desperately to get this story down. What happened next? Scholars believe that Matthew and Luke used Mark's basic outline but had available to them another document we've never found of teaching materials of Jesus. We have something similar to it that's called the Gospel according to St. Thomas, which has nothing about what happened the next week or the next month, but just teachings. Matthew is trying to convince his readership that Jesus was greater than Moses. Moses saw the burning bush on a mountain. Moses went back up that same mountain and came down with the Ten Commandments. Jesus, in Matthew, delivers his longest sermon from the mountain. Matthew takes 111 verses to give you that sermon. Luke is writing to us Gentiles. He deletes much of that sermon material that begins... You have heard it said by men of old, but I say to you, because we Gentiles had not heard from the men of old. We didn't know the Torah the way Matthew's Jewish readership would have known it. So Luke edits that material down, we believe, from 111 verses to only 29. Today, he begins that sermon with four blessings and four what scholars call the woes, W-O-E-S. The four blessings have to do with God's favor upon those who are poor, upon those who are hungry. And in the woes, God's judgment for those who think they have everything they need and are not really concerned about those who have less. But I want to concentrate the sermon today on what comes even before those blessings and woes. Let's do it this way. The first thing I see in today's lection is that Luke wants us to know this multitude included both Jew and Gentile. He begins, Great crowd came from all Judea and Jerusalem 
they would be Jews. And from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, ancient Phoenicia, modern-day Lebanon, they would be Gentiles. So Luke is trying to help his Gentile readership understand that God sent Jesus to invite us all. That God doesn't have a child anywhere out there in the world that he does not love and is not concerned about. All the youngest and all the oldest of every color, of every ethnic background, gender, absolutely inclusive, all his children, the message goes out to all. Dr. John Buchanan has been writing in Christian Century Magazine this past year that he was in the last year of his ministry at the Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. He did, in fact, retire at the end of January two weeks ago. Forty-eight years he's been a pastor since his ordination. He came and gave our Barton Clinton Gordy series in 1991. We loved his preaching then. I've enjoyed reading what he's written, much of it since that time. He's now editor of the Christian Century Magazine. And during the past year, in many of his editorials, he said, I'm not thinking about this being my last Lent. I'm not thinking about this being my last Easter. I'm not thinking about this being my last Pentecost. And he just went on and on all year long. I'm not thinking about this being my last Advent, my last Christmas. But in the last article he wrote, maybe I'll miss more than anything baptizing babies. He said, I've always loved to baptize babies. Some of them are brought for their baptism in gowns that have been passed down through the family. You can tell. This is a beautiful old gown. This baby's mother or father wore this gown. This baby's grandmother, grandfather, may have worn this gown. It's very special. Nowadays, he said, of course, little boys sometimes are brought with their little sweaters on, little girls with different uh, kinds of dresses. One little fellow, he said, was handed to me a couple of years ago that had a tuxedo on, head to toe, even with a little bow tie on it. Now, Dr. Buchanan learned what I learned a long time ago as well. When the baby's brought is very important. If a baby's brought for baptism at three months, four months, hey, they'll let anybody hold them at that point. But if you let them get to be a year old, Behavioral scientists call this separation anxiety. And it happens at their baptism. It's almost impossible to keep them from crying at that point when you take them out of the mother or father's arms. Sometimes they throw up on you, and sometimes they scream. But you baptize them anyway. Dr. Buchanan said not long ago, a child was brought for infant baptism who was beyond infancy. This child must have been nearly three. And he said, I took this pretty good-sized kid in my left arm and I dipped my hand into the font, placed it on his head, and said what we Presbyterians say. Called the name of the child and said, By the waters of baptism you are marked as a child of God and belong to Jesus Christ forever. And this little fellow said, uh-oh. <laughs> you belong to Jesus Christ forever. 
that Luke is writing his gospel to say again and again, God is trying to get as many of his children to come home as possible. Number two, they gathered to hear the word of God. They came from all these places to hear the word of God. Last September, I was reading a rather lengthy article about the best-selling new books for children. We had three children to whom we read lots of books. We have six grandchildren to whom we've enjoyed reading books. Our Rotary Club began a wonderful thing when one of our own here from Boston Avenue, John Johnson, was our president. He decided more than 20 years ago during his presidency that most of us who make speeches at Rotary Clubs get one more ballpoint pen or one more coffee mug. And rather than giving out ballpoint pens or coffee mugs to our speakers, why not buy a book for our Adopt-A-Schools library, Celia Clinton, the Rotary Club is adopted, and put a new book every week in their library with the speaker having signed. You know, I was in Rotary Club of Tulsa on a certain day, and I'm really glad this book's being given to you in my name. Well, that was over 20 years ago. We've put more than 1,000 books into the library at Celia Clinton since that time, one every week. Well, last September, here was a big, long article about the best-selling children's books, and one of them was A Monster Calls. It's a story about a little boy, 13, that'd be about seventh grade, who keeps having a recurring nightmare. In this nightmare, someone is holding on to his hands, and he feels his hands slipping away from the other bigger hands. In some of the dreams, one hand is already lost and the other is clinging desperately to hold on and his hand is slipping free from the others. One night he heard the wind howling, looked out his bedroom window. The wind was bending an old tree over and suddenly this new tree became a monster. A monster that said, Connor, tell me your story jumps back in bed, covers up his head. But he hears the wind and he goes to look out the window again and he sees this old yew tree bent by the wind, its mouth saying, Connor, tell me your story. Jumps back in bed. Happens a third time, sort of biblical here. Third time he goes to the window and the old monster tree says, Connor, tell me your story. Stories His story is that his father has abandoned him and his mother, has gone away and married a younger woman, and she's now had a baby, and he's sure his father now loves that little baby and that there's no place in his heart for Connor. And he also knows that his mother is ill and that she's getting more ill and more ill And though most people are trying to shelter him, he's come to believe she's going to die. They're slipping away. All the people whom he loves most are slipping away. A monster calls and says, tell me your story. Well, Jesus is saying, guess who's calling, tenderly calling you home? Tell me your story. 
Tell me your story. Let me tell you my story. Number three, they came to be healed of their diseases. Ever thought about that word, dis-ease? Dis-ease. What, what causes you not to be at ease? What causes you not to be at peace? What is the source of your dis-ease? In this same article, I read about a book called The Flint Heart. And the article said, this is not a new book. This book's over 80 years old. But it's become a bestseller this year because once only words now has terrific new illustrations. A very capable illustrator of children's books was asked to draw lots of exciting pictures to illustrate this book. The Flint Heart, more than 80 years old, is a story that goes all the way back into the Stone Age when folks lived in caves and were hunters and gatherers. And one of these cavemen found a special little stone, perhaps tumbled by the waters of a stream, and continued to smooth and smooth and smooth it till it was beautiful, he thought, but it had some strange power. That whoever held it at any given time became ruthless, mean, hateful. It was passed on from one generation of another of these Stone Age folk, and then it was lost for more than 5,000 years, lost in the moors of England. And then one day, a farmer, turning over the sod with his plow, saw this beautiful, smooth little stone. He picked it up rubbed all the dust off and put it in his pocket and became a changed man. Evil, vile, hateful. His own children didn't recognize him, didn't like the behavior, didn't know what they could do about it, start trying to find help. And according to this story, called upon the wee pixies to come and help them. There are two problems right off with this story. Children can't change their father or their mother. And the truth is, moms and dads can't really change sons and daughters either. One person can change himself, herself, if that person has help. If you don't want to be the flint heart, you can be something else. Jesus came to tell us that there is one supreme being who created the heavens and the earth who's come in flesh and blood to help you know your heart can be changed. Your disease can be healed. Number four, they just wanted to touch him. They perceived that power went out from him. Now, those of you who have been to any Bible study I've ever done about Luke or Acts know that I point out Luke loves this word power. In Greek, it is dunamis, from which we get dynamite, dynamic, dynamo, all those words in English. The noun means power. The verb means to be able, to be able to do something. In fact, two chapters later in Luke's own gospel, Jesus will be hurrying through a street one day, following a father whose daughter is dying, when suddenly he stops and said, Who touched me? The disciples said, Who touched you? 
Look at all these people. Oh, no, somebody touched me for a special reason. I felt power go out from me, he said. Power. If you put yourself in the right place at the right time, you reach out a hand to touch, he's ready to touch you too. To empower you, to make you able to be a part of the kingdom of God by his grace. I watched a program a few weeks ago on television about Garrison Keillor, part of his life. Maybe you listen to Garrison Keillor, maybe not. I've listened to him for many years now. Every Sunday when I'm through with Sunday lunch with my family and I start on home, Garrison Keillor is on PBS radio right here in Tulsa. He's on late Saturday afternoon. It's a repeat on Sunday afternoon. Those of you who do listen to Garrison Keillor know that he grew up in a little bitty place in Minnesota called Anoka. That he was taken to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, the little Plymouth Brethren Church, which is fundamentalistic, meaning they believe that the Word of God came down in the Bible exactly as it is, King James Version, of course, and that no word has ever been touched, handled or mishandled by any human being. It came straight from God and that the earth itself is only about 3,700 years old, all that sort of thing. When he was graduated high school, he went to the University of Minnesota and got a degree in English and became a writer. He started trying desperately to get something published with the New Yorker magazine. Finally, he was successful. The real turn in his life came with this radio program called A Prairie Home Companion. It's a variety show. They still do it as if it's only a radio show, but there are hundreds of people at every performance watching them just with their voices act out stories. He has quite a bit of religious music on there, songs he learned when he was a child that he still likes to sing. He's now written more than 20 books. When he was 58 years old, he had heart surgery that nearly, nearly killed him. About a year and a half ago, he had a mild stroke. He's come back from that. He's working again. He's eccentric. He wears coat and tie with red shoes. Used to just wear red socks. And then a few years ago, he said, well, instead of just red socks, I wear red shoes. They're jogging shoes, but he always wants red, red ones. Nonetheless, he's nearly 70 now, and he's recently said, when I was growing up in Anoka, Minnesota, the worst thing I could imagine was to be ordinary all my life. And now that I'm almost 70, I know that whenever I walk down off a stage and I brush my teeth to go to bed, I'm ordinary. We're all ordinary, he said, and it's okay. He's now an Episcopalian in St. Paul. He worships regularly, talks about it often. Condoleezza Rice wrote her life story, and she called it Extraordinary, Ordinary People. Dr. Fred Craddock was born in 1928, grew up in the Great Depression. His family farmed a poor dirt farm in rural Tennessee. When Fred was eight, in the throes of the Great Depression, the family lost the farm. They had to move into a little rent house in a small Tennessee town. 
He said, we were hoping for something better, but it wasn't. We still had no electricity, no running water, an outhouse behind this small mint building. My oldest sister was about to go into high school. She was having trouble with her complexion. She was painfully shy. I remember even though I was younger, just a boy, that she'd comb her hair as far down as she could to try to hide her complexion. We had no money to do anything about it. And then we started the school. And after a few weeks, the prettiest girl in school, the daughter of the president of the bank, walked up to my sister and handed her an invitation to her slumber party the next Friday night. He said it changed her life. I heard my sister say when she was nearly 80 that that invitation handed to her by the president of the bank's daughter changed her life. And Jesus said, God Almighty has delivered you 